Welcome to the New Stories Podcast. Well, welcome everyone. I'm Rodney Glasgow, the head of school at Sandy Spring Friends School. It's always great to do this podcast and especially great to sit with dear friend and colleague, Nicole Lee, who is our Director of Institutional Equity, Justice, and Belonging. And within that topic, today we're going to focus on our youngest learners, our preschool to fifth grade, an area that Nicole knows well just through her own professional career, but also as a parent. And so I'm really excited to bring her voice into this discussion. Nicole, anything you want to say about yourself by way of introduction, and then we're going to jump right in. Just hello, and I'm really glad to be with you today. And yeah, and I guess the only thing I would add is that I'm a proud Sandy Spring parent as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, so I've been thinking all morning about this podcast, and I've, I've been thinking about do we or do we not go there? And then I was getting my tea this morning, and I picked the Black Lives Matter mug. <laughs> And it's like, okay, so we're going to go there because we're having this discussion on the morning after the murder of Dante Wright, just down the street from the trial for justice of George Floyd. And I don't think we can talk about identity matters and identity development without talking about what it would be for children to grow up when this is the news cycle. So let's right. just start in the deep end. What no, does it mean as a, as a parent, as an educator, as a diversity professional? What do you think our youngest learners, our youngest sponges are soaking up in this moment? Oh, gosh. So much. So much more than we recognize. So much more than we want to deal with. And it's interesting that we start here because for me, my journey in working on diversity, equity, inclusion as it relates to children really began in Ferguson, Missouri. And I don't mean because of the topic of Ferguson, Missouri. I was actually in Ferguson, Missouri. I was asked to go to Ferguson after the killing of Mike Brown, the young 18-year-old that was killed by the police officer, Darren Wilson. I was asked to go Because I had spent most of my career working on DEI, but I'd also worked internationally. And I'd worked Mm. in some pretty big hotbeds of kind of protest or unrest or where human rights violations had happened. So I got a call from kind of a household civil rights name and said, no, we really need you to go to Ferguson. And my response was, I don't really know a lot about domestic civil rights. And they said, no, but you know tanks. I know that you've been on the street at protests where there are tanks and we're not used to tanks. So come on out. And I remember being in Ferguson and I remember at at a certain point in Mike Brown's neighborhood, when kind of the school kids would come home, everyone would come out of their apartment building. It was a big apartment complex with different buildings with apartments in them. Everyone would come out and they would stand kind of around the memorial. And at that time, the memorial where his body had laid for four and a half hours. It was bigger than a person. It was, it was very long, took up almost the entire street. And folks would come out and just talk. And mm. I was doing some documentation work and I realized I, I had discovered something at, at the beginning of my legal career. 
which was if you really want to know how something happened, if you really are documenting something, you go talk to the kids. They may not completely know every single detail and fact. Oftentimes what is happening around them, often traumatic things, they literally have to look up. So if you think about what it's like to have to look up to see what's happening, if you understand their perspective, you understand their point of view, you can get as close to the truth as it's possible. You're not quote unquote there. And I sat there and I talked to some of the kids, young, five, six, seven, that lived in Mike Brown's neighborhood. And they told me a lot of details. And you could tell that not a lot of folks had talked to them about their experience. Not only had they experienced that day, but every day and the protests and the smell of tear gas in their neighborhood and the ways in which they were even afraid in the mornings to walk out because they would see kind of like all the things that were left over, if you will, from the protests. They were simply terrified. But then I had an opportunity to go to a fairly affluent independent school, kind of in the heart of St. Louis, and talk with the kids. And they were also terrified. They had their data points, not as clear as the kids in Ferguson, not an on-the-ground perspective, but a real perspective. And no one was talking to them either, and they were terrified too. So what occurred to me, and this has never occurred to me before in years, I had talked to children about hard things for a long time. It never occurred to me that it isn't so much that they were there as much as they live in a society where this is happening. And even if they're not on the ground, they didn't witness the shooting. They haven't witnessed the protests. They are picking up the anxiety of being in a society where not only these things happen, but they are allowed. And adults give often very complicated, but also, if this is possible, not very helpful or detailed descriptions as to how to understand. And so it was there in Ferguson that I decided I had to understand this. I went back home to Washington, D.C., home to my own four-year-old, and just looking at her, I kept thinking, if you asked, what would I say? How can I explain what I, everything that I've just seen, which was pretty shocking to me, albeit, you know, I had worked in Darfur, and yet here I am in Ferguson, and my mouth is agape the entire time. Like, how would I just describe this to a four-year-old? And I knew that this was like one of the hardest things that I would have to figure out. And I also knew I had to figure it out. I had to understand how to do it for her sake. Not so much for mine, but for her sake, I was going to have to get there. And so long introduction, but that's how I embarked upon this journey of really understanding not only what children do know and what they understand, but what they need to know and how we as parents and educators play, can play a huge role and providing for them the context that they need, not just to survive, but to thrive. And it's put me in mind, Evan, we're talking a lot now about dual pandemics, this pandemic of racism, or I have elevated it to the pandemic of oppression on mm-hmm. lots of levels. It's all multiplayer. And the pandemic of COVID-19. And thinking about, I was watching A Million Little Things, which is one of my shows I love, <laughs> that I just love. So, and they've got a cute little Asian child on that show. And he was in virtual school, and one of his friends told him, put your mask on, you're going to make us all sick. And he, you could tell he felt bad, 
And he didn't quite fully get it. He's like, okay, I'll put my mask on. And the mother says, what are you doing? Why are you putting the mask on? Well, they said, I'm going to make him sick if I don't, right? And she knew it was anti-Asian sentiment. He kind of got it. But then there's that moment as a parent, how much do I tell him about what's happening in this moment? And how much do I shield him? And how much does he understand? And so help us to understand from an identity development standpoint, in, in situations like that, how much is a kid understanding and how much is it on a parent to help them to understand in that moment? He probably, I think he's like a fourth grader. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's, that's a really good example of the, the conflict that we have as adults. We know they know a little bit. So conventional wisdom used to be soothe that away, make that go away, make it feel like, Oh, who knows? But what we know and what research has told us is that that kind of gut, if you will, instinct that I, I know there's something up, but I can't quite describe it. I don't have the information is something we have to cultivate in our children. When we don't cultivate it, we actually make them susceptible like, as they get older, move away from our constant 24-7 care. It makes them susceptible to not be able to use that spidey sense. So I'm using gut and spidey sense to help keep them safe. I talk to parents and I, I coach parents all the time and they say, but it's going to hurt them more. It's going to hurt them more, even if I figure out the words to describe what's happening. And I have to say that in the long term, it actually allows for them to develop the resilience that they need. Is it going to be a hard moment? If you are a parent or a teacher within the sound of my voice, you know, we live through multiple hard moments with our kids, multiple. This is a hard moment that when we live through it with them, we develop so many positive things for them. The resiliency I talked about, the trust. Imagine how it feels like to be that sixth grader. So this, the, in, in your scenario, he's in fourth grade. In sixth grade, where he hears a racial slur, and then he thinks back about what happened on fourth, in fourth grade, and he thinks, oh my God, that's what they meant. That shock, that betrayal, as parents and as adults in children's lives, we actually don't want to be a part of that at all. Because it's not just that kid saying, put their mask on. It is a society and it is systems that will continue to be a part of that child's life all the way into adulthood. And our job is to really prepare our children to be able to grapple with these systems and to grapple with society, to grapple with their own emotions about it. Fourth grade, frankly, when you look developmentally, is actually a really important time. What research shows us, actually, it's that third, fourth grade-ish where children realize, wait a minute, I was told that if I did the right thing, if I did good things, good things would happen to me. And if I did, quote unquote, bad things, bad things would happen. But now, I'm seeing, for example, when we look at race, I'm seeing white kids do things that aren't so great and no one says anything, but when I do them or no one else has a mask on, why do I need to put a mask on? They are discovering this difference, whether or not we speak to them about it. What we have to decide, and I feel like I bring a lot of tough love on this one and tough medicine on this one, what we have to decide is, do we want to be a solution to our children or do we want to be the impediment? Do we want to be a part of the society that wasn't real with them, that didn't give them the tools? Or do we want to be the ones that say, so what happened? He said, put on a mask because I think it might have to do with the fact that some people believe that COVID comes from Asian people 
or comes from Chinese people. We can be specific, right? Gets very specific. And that's not good because it's not true. I'm wondering how you're feeling. If you're feeling disappointed or sad, I can understand that and I can hear that. And then we stop talking and we let them say or not say whatever they need to say. But yet we're that ally, if you will. We stand there as an ally and we hold space for it. Sometimes people say, well, that sounds really simple. And and how does that really help? It provides a level of centering and agency that children and adults actually need when these things happen. It provides for them the right to determine what the next steps are. I'm upset. I'm mad. I want to say something to him. Okay, let's begin to work that out. Now, I I have to say, though, because the scenario you put forth, it was virtual school. So as we're doing this or when we have our moment free, that's an email. That's email to a lot of folks because there's a learning opportunity for everyone now. And so what I would say to a teacher who says that this happens, that this is something that you then address. And if you can't address it in the moment for whatever reason, sometimes we can't address it in the moment because we're shocked. This happens. This happens. We're just like, I didn't know what to do. Okay, but there's tomorrow and there's the next day and there's the next day and there's the next day. And this is a conversation we need to begin. And it's not to shame the child that said it especially when we're talking about lower school. It's actually never about shame, but it really is about raising awareness, identifying exactly what happened. Children do not deal in gray areas. They want to hear specifically what are you talking about. I've been in situations where people have said, well, we kind of talked about it, and now they know to be nice. I don't know. I'm Gen X. When I grew up, my teachers told me I could never write words like nice or good. No four-letter words, even if they weren't expletives, because they're not descriptive. Children need description. And so as teachers and as educators, it's important that we go into that uncomfortable area and really be willing to have those conversations for their benefit. It's not to shame, but it's for their benefit so they understand better the world as it is in some ways, but also the world we're trying to create. Well, you know, so much in that unpack, and one of them is absolutely highlighting the research that fourth grade is about the time at which young people understand the systemic. They get it enough that they start to speak it in ways that sound really adults, even though they don't fully get the whole weight of what they're saying. Right. And, and when we don't respond to it, it's not that they don't know that something wrong has happened. It's not that they don't feel the hurt. We're not shielding them from that. We're actually teaching them the lack of resiliency, but also the silence. Yes. That this is something that happens that you don't talk about. And so in that way, then we teach them to allow the system to perpetuate because we don't teach them that when something like that happens, you need to speak and speak up. And we don't practice with them. So the next time someone makes a comment like that, how should we be responding? And, and the other flip side of that is, the other kid misses the opportunity to learn what's the impact of what you said and where did that come from and why did that cause that reaction and why am I upset that you would say that to another person? We assume that they're going to soak all that up or that they didn't understand what they were doing. And, and, and we don't know for sure until you really talk with the child. I think that's so important to teach children metacognition and to understand what they really do understand. We make a lot of assumptions as adults about what kids can and can't understand. We really do. And it's actually to our own peril. The thing that, and we could, we could talk about this forever. (laughs) I mean, the thing that I find so interesting in it, and I, you know, I've written about this, but also like just in my day-to-day work is that even the silence 
often or this need for when we perpetuate the silence, it actually comes from this idea that we're protecting. It comes mm -hmm. from this idea of love. But what we have to remember is the silence is actually not protecting the child. Often it really is protecting the adult from dealing with the hard moment. And so as much as we're building their resilience, we have to build our own too. It also comes from those moments where our children, you know, we can have a situation where, where our own children say something that they shouldn't have said. I know I, I've had situations where my child has said things and I won't go into it because she will be upset. <laughs> I've talked about her on a podcast, but I had to get over my own stuff about it to really help her work that through. And I had to be very clear with her. We don't do that. Like, that's not how we believe in this family. This is what we believe. And this is why. And to be really clear with her, not to coddle this, you know, oppressive idea that she had to absolutely care for her feelings, but to be very clear with her. This is my expectation of you. And I think that that piece is also very hard for parents because we put the weight of society. Oh, my gosh, my child said something racist. My child said something homophobic. We put the weight of society. When we're talking about lower school, we actually need more of, and this may sound a little bit much, but the weight of actually our expectations, right? If our expectations are that we are kind, loving, caring, social justice-minded people, our children actually need to know that. They're not picking it up through osmosis. It's not just the modeling. Modeling is huge, but words are really important. Words mm -hmm. are really important. Narrating for them is so important. Yes, that, that's a great tip for parents and for teachers to narrate what exactly you mean, what exactly is happening, what is the impact, and then to allow them to narrate back what their understanding is, right? Huge. And we're really good at that when they're small. Like, you know, when we have babies, all the baby books talk about this. We'll say, okay, we're getting your bottle ready. Now we've had our bottle. Now we're going to burp you. Okay, we're going to change your diaper. Are you ready to go in the stroller? We're giving them language. We right. have to continue that for a long time because language gets more complicated and the nuances of society come in. So we have to be prepared and ready to continue that process. Right. But we only want to give them language on the things we want to talk about. And because we don't want to talk about exactly. <laughs> race and racism, we're not down to narrate it. You know, and it goes back to even kids younger than fourth grade and parents of kids younger than fourth grade saying, well, I don't want to teach my kid to see differences. My kid does not see differences. Where do you put those kinds of sentiments around? We don't want to teach our kids about the differences of race, the differences of gender at times, right? The differences of sexuality. We, we want our kids to see everybody the same and to treat everybody the same. So this notion of treating everyone the same, we can, we can talk about. I think that there's actually even some variation there. But to get our children to treat people fairly, right? There actually is not a connection between them not quote unquote seeing difference and treating people fairly. I mean, I think that's the first thing we make that connection. It is, it is not rooted in any factual information, anything we know about children. When I started journeying around diversity, equity, inclusion, as it related to children, the thing that I was most shocked about is how so much of the research is settled. This is settled research about what we need to be talking about, saying to our children about race, gender, et cetera. What we know is that we actually aren't really teaching our children difference like ever. We never get the opportunity because the truth is by the time we would think that we could teach them something, they already know. Children as young as four months can tell the difference in race or in skin coloration between their caregiver and everybody else. 
They're mm-hmm. making distinctions. They are very, very aware of difference. Before our children can fully verbalize in language, they know the difference in gender. Not only that, they know the difference between traditional gender roles in our society and maybe what their parents do. So, for example, if it's a it's if it's a family where there is a mom and a dad and the dad stays at home and the mom goes to work, those two three year olds know, well, moms usually stay at home and dads usually stay at work. But my mom goes to work and my dad stays home. This is how detailed their understanding is. And that's by two, three. So when I'm having conversations with parents who have four or five year olds, I'm thinking to them often, you miss the train, like your child's on a speeding train, you're gonna have to go to catch up because they're already gone. They already know difference. Now, do they put the societal weight on difference? Usually not until a little bit later, but they're already collecting data on it. They're already collecting data on, hmm, you know, when the girls go over to play with the trucks, if the boys want them, the boys usually come get them and the teacher really doesn't say anything. Or, hmm, I don't know. I I thought this child, this friend's skin looked like mud. And when I said it, he seemed sad, but no one said anything. So maybe that's okay. Or maybe it's not. I'm not sure. They're collecting all of this data, what we say and what we don't say. And so when parents say to me that they are concerned about introducing difference, the first thing I need them to understand is that we are not that powerful, actually. The human Mm. brain demands that we are distinguishing between people. Bias, for example. So we talk about bias as being a bad thing implicit, explicit biases being, especially when we're talking about racial or gender, et cetera, those biases. The truth of the matter is bias is. That is how our brain works. That is how we have evolved. And so the question really is, are you willing to dig deep into what your children are already thinking about and actually giving your values to it? So if you believe that everyone should be treated fairly, then when you go through your child's books, how many characters of color do you see? Because we see teddy bears, we see personified trucks, like animated, humanized trucks, and all of these things that are not people. And there are more books like that than there are of children of color, particularly when you start talking about main characters. And so we have to decide how invested we really are, which is a different question than, oh, we just won't say anything and it'll all be okay. The question is, no, this is already being introduced. How am I willing to intervene and be a part of a process where my child begins to understand that their identities are important and so are other folks' identities. Mm. And, you know, that research about babies, a little bit less than one years old, right, a couple months mm-hmm. old, they can discern racial differences. And, and what is interesting, though, as we know, that kids are also cultural detectives. And so whereas we may not be narrating our racism to them, we may be clutching them a little tighter if a person of a certain color gets too close and they are sensing that because that's the job of a child, right? Is I got to pick up on all the cues of the world so that I can figure out how I survive in this world that I'm brand new to. And so we do implicitly pass on all those things and, and it, it compels parents to also think about what are you doing to make sure that you're doing your work of anti-racism and anti-sexism and anti-homophobia and anti-classism so that you don't implicitly or explicitly pass that on in the non-verbals to even your youngest kids. 
It's so interesting because your example, it, it happens all the time. I, I tell this story a lot that so many people come to me, especially like maybe five years ago, maybe less so now, I think just because kids are getting older and they would come to me and they would say, I want my child to have like this very, very diverse friend group. I want them to just love all people. In fact, you know what I want the, their friend group to look like? And I was like, wait for it. The United <laughs> Colors of Benetton ads. Do you remember the United Colors of Benetton ads? And I'd be like, yes, I do. I really do. I knew, I know what you're talking about. And they would go on and on. And then I would ask the question. So what does your friend group look like? And they said, well, what do you mean? And then, you know, they begin to talk and I said, well, no, no, tell, tell me a little bit about like on a Friday night, obviously pre-COVID Friday night, when you're hanging out, you're just unwinding, you're eating pizza, you're hanging around with your parent, your parent friends. What does that table look like? Is the family structure all the same race class? What does your really core friend group like? Cause going back to the research, what we know is you can actually have the conversations Around middle school, like around the time that children don't want to talk to us anymore that much and we're not the center or the, the people who they think have the best information around that time where we're kind of like cut out of that group, they begin to model us. So those cafeteria tables will look like how our dinner table looks like. So it's more than just wanting it to be different. It's really we have to be different. We have to be examining who we are. And it can even be something like, and this happens a lot with very progressive-minded parents, where you're in the grocery store and your three-year-old starts pointing and says, look at that black woman. And you say, shh, shh, like, oh my gosh. First of all, and I cannot speak for all people, but as a black woman myself, when I see that, I, I actually want to see if the parent says, Yes, or well, let's ask or has a conversation because then I'm going to be just over here applauding, not, I, but I'm never upset that a child is pointing out that they see race. In fact, I'm thinking, phew, thank God, one more, <laughs> one more that's, that's having right. this conversation. But it's like, even in our best intentions, sometimes we send this uh, message that it is a bad thing, that they shouldn't talk about it. They shouldn't say what they really think. And it has a lot to do with how children deal with identity, but it also, it also has other effects. It's how children actually deal with us when important things come up that are a little bit mm. taboo. Are we the first people they go to? That's what I hope and pray for. I want to be the first line of defense always for my daughters, but my hopes for that are, are really will be realized in how much space I've given them to say the unspokens before. Right, right. You know, your, your example about the colors of Benetton put me in the mind of that famous saying, you know, I don't care if they're purple, blue, or lime green, I see them all the same. <laughs> and somebody reminded me recently, you know, that trivializes the actual human shades of color and the histories of oppression because you weren't oppressing people who were lime green. <laughs> and that is not right. That does not exist. Right? You will be friends so with right. people who don't actually exist. <laughs> and right, exactly. Thinking about where this lives in schools, mm. and The Atlantic came out with that article most recently about independent schools and calling out independent schools on any number of things. Their elitism, the hefty price tags, the expectations, and also this culture of what they're calling indoctrination. And the indoctrination is into this anti-racist regime and this diversity work and teaching kids how to think, which is supposed to be done at home. And so where, as a diversity practitioner in an independent school, 
how do you respond to this notion that your work, my work, our work is, is indoctrinating kids unfairly into our points of view? So a part of one thing that I'd like to point out about it is that understand that schools have been indoctrinating students since schools were created. It's actually the purpose of schools. It might be the indoctrination into thinking for yourself. It could be that we're indoctrinating them into, quote unquote, free thought, right? Liberal ideology like democracy. That is actually the role. Schools, the, the, in my mind, the best schools really are looking at society and how society is shifting. So I'm very glad, for example, that schools decided to take eugenics out of their science curriculum because it's racist. Like, I'm very glad that happened. I'm glad that schools are moving in the direction that society is moving. When I think about that, there's a real practical response that I have. And it's that I want my children to learn important lessons about living in a multiracial, multicultural society from, at home, certainly. I also want them to learn it in school because I really want them to learn it because this is not the 1980s or 90s anymore. In 2021, there are real consequences and real accountability, particularly for young adults who have not learned that it is not okay to be racist or sexist or homophobic. There are real consequences. And I cannot tell you the amount of parents who I've either sat on a couch or on Zoom with them and they have sobbed about how their child made a choice and did something that was anti-Semitic or did something that was racist or did something that was sexist and it's costing them. And we all want to think that those parents are bad people. We all want to say when those things happen, we're like, oh, well, they must have been taking them to Ku Klux Klan rallies since the very beginning. And I can tell you, even families that I've spoken to where, and, and I, this has been a part of my work where I have talked and worked with folks whose children have committed hate crimes, crimes that they will now be punished for in terms of incarceration. The thing that I have noticed is for the most part, these are not quote unquote bad people. These are not people that are out there attempting to do harm or evil. They are people though that didn't talk to their kids about race and gender and sexuality and class. They may have said, and you can even go back and read articles about folks that have done horrible hate crimes against folks. And you'll read the families will say like, he was nice. He was fine. I mean, he had a black friend. We saw that even in the Charleston shooting. That's what the mother came out and said. She also said, mm. this wasn't something we talked about. We didn't talk about race. We didn't talk about gender. We didn't talk about class. And so I am glad that independent schools have the flexibility to take this on. I think that anti-racism is essential for the identity of our children. And this is our children of color and for white children. We are moving into a time in our society where if those basics are not understood, it will not matter if you go to an Ivy League school or get into an Ivy League school. It will not matter how talented you are. Our society is moving in the direction where we all actually have to be decent citizens, if you will, in society. And while we've had some you know, recent things that have happened that have made some of us question that, I would say that all in all, we're seeing that trend. And so I, I certainly am not surprised by some of the backlash and also the work still continues. And that's exciting. And the examples are making me think about 
when a transgression happens in school and we want to say, well, you know, my kid didn't know or that was not their intent and, and we want to excuse it or get away with simply educating about it. We always should educate. We are schools. But, but what this generation of young people in schools has taught me through the Black App movements and other things is, you know, when we do that, we're saying it's okay for you to learn on my back. Right. It's okay for you to have your experiences at my expense. So schools, I wish that they were going so far as to indoctrinate, because that would mean that they were doing this extremely deep, right, and powerful and consistent work. That's what I think about indoctrination. But really what the Atlantic and other things are responding to is performative allyship. We're doing a whole lot of looking like we're doing a whole lot, but, but we're not really. But even just that performative allyship has kicked up the dust of schools in the middle of students and their families right around. Here are our family values. Here are the things we want the school to discuss. And here are the school values. And here are the things we want kids to know. And having been in private school education for 20 years, this is the most palpable time that I felt the divide. There's always been the discomfort, but we're sitting in the divide. And so it makes me wonder, what does a teacher do? What does a lower school teacher do when they've got all the professional development behind them, all the research behind them, but they've got to march into that classroom and teach a lesson that they know there will be some parents who are going to raise an eyebrow. Or they've got to have a conversation because something happened and they're not even sure how to respond to it, but their lack of response is also a lesson. How does a teacher in the preschool to fifth grade realm deal with these things in their classroom? My response already has me chuckling a little bit because the first thing is like, so what is the mission and vision of the school? If the mission and the vision of the school speaks to social justice, it speaks to anti-racism, it speaks to dealing with these issues. Well, that's a good indi indication of where your quote unquote marching orders really lie. If there's further concern, it's about speaking to the lower school head. And this is why I'm chuckling in the head of school about mm -hmm. where does our where does our line sit? And not so much as, oh my gosh, is this okay? But this is what I know. This is my class. This is what I know from the research. This is what I know even from the professional development you've taught me. Now, this is a real world experience. Either this is how I'm going to handle it or this is how I handled it. Because so often folks want additional, like they, they feel like they need that additional permission. And, and sometimes that's actually not what's needed. It's really kind of jumping out into that courageous space and doing mm. the work, knowing that it's not going to be, quote unquote, perfect, but we're actually not looking for perfect. We're looking for these openings and these opportunities to have conversations with our children. I, I will say, and again, chuckling as the role that I play at Sandy Spring Friends School, when there is feedback that's given, I take feedback from parents very seriously. If the feedback is that, the mission and vision of the school was executed and I disagree with the execution of it, we're actually in a different conversation. We're in a conversation about the alignment between your values and the school's values. I will tell you, my daughter attends Sandy Spring Friends School because there is alignment with those values. And I actually don't need to know much more. I'm good. She's going to like what she's going to like. She's going to have friends when she's going to have friends. She can do that anywhere. But if I feel my family values is in alignment with the school, I know that there is not going to be those sorts of tensions that I, I'm not interested in. Now, does that mean that everything's going to be perfect? No, absolutely not.
and there's room for conversation. And I hear this from families all over, public schools and independent schools, where they feel this misalignment. That's tougher. And then you have to have conversations about school says this, we believe that. And that's yeah. that's a little bit more difficult. My experience at Sandy Spring Friends School has really been a lot of alignment, a lot of great ideas with our social justice principles, really wanting to see those enacted both through our curriculum, through what we do on a daily basis, and, and, and not a misalignment, more about like how can we how can we grow as a community and do more of this? And so I really I encourage teachers to take that plunge, have those conversations. It deepens our students' ability academically, socially, emotionally, when they are able to have some hard conversations. I know that with my one of my daughters, a, a, a conversation around, I'll say, ability came up. And mm-hmm. it was a very deep conversation about ability. It was like, this is a thing that could happen, and this is how you all need to respond to it. It was transformative for my daughter. And in fact, she was able to talk with her sister about, right? So it was an eight-year-old and 11-year-old conversation repeatedly about ability and what disability means. It's not just this, but it could be this, 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 and this. Just from this conversation that her teacher had with her. We can do very powerful things when we are vulnerable and courageous as teachers and administrators. And as parents, when we have concerns or we want to understand better, I think there's always room for that too. At least for me and at least what I what I experience and what I see at Sandy Spring is that there's a lot of room for those conversations. And that is really exciting to me. Mm. No, really important what you're, what you're saying and the alignment of school and home in terms of values, really important. And as head of school, I always go back to if we're doing our mission aligned activities and programs, and we're speaking to the things that we told you we were going to speak to because this is who we are, you can go home and unteach all of that to your kid that that's what you would like. But when they come back here the next day, (laughs) and it reminds me of how I grew up, right? My mother, when you go to other people's houses, you respect their rules, but don't try to bring those rules here because when we're here, this is what I expect. And that's so important to learn how to be a cultural traveler in that way. So parents always have the opportunity to teach their kids their values, but also you have to respect that a school also is a place and a home that has values and has ways of doing things. Absolutely. Well, you know, I know you literally wrote the book, Raising Anti-Racist Kids, and we're doing an author talk at Bruce Andy Spring Friends School, April 22nd at seven o'clock virtually, and we hope folks will tune into that conversation. And as we wrap up this conversation, they can get the book on Amazon as yes. well. Yeah. Yes, Amazon's the easiest way to get it. Or you can stop by my office. I have a couple copies sitting on the desk. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and, and, and well worth it, especially in this time. So to go all the way back to where we began this conversation, as parents of young kids, and we can't pretend in this moment that young kids aren't seeing something in the news that they are asking What are they talking about and what do I need to know? How are parents tonight going to sit down with their kids, whether they're kids of color or white kids, and talk with them about what's happening in the news today around race? What are your suggestions? Well, my suggestion is really to gauge where they're at. If they're feeling sad or disappointed or scared, 
talk with them about that. What does that feel like? What does that look like? What are the pieces that you're afraid of? It's important that our children know that they're safe if they're safe. If they're not safe, also it's important for them to know that too. But for most of the folks listening to my voice, their children are safe. They're physically safe, but they probably have some pretty negative feelings. As they get older, when we start talking about even second and third grade, it's important for them to know, especially in this moment where we have the George Floyd trial going on and we still have actually two incidents. One resulted in the death of a young man. Another was a police brutality caught on tape this weekend. We need to remind them that it is still a problem and a lot of problems in our society, they take a long time to solve and they shouldn't because it's unfair. They shouldn't take that long, but they do. And so what is it we're doing as a family? What are we committed mm-hmm. to as a family in order to make the resolution a little bit shorter? For the long time, we had this big Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter forever sign mm-hmm. that my daughter painted. And it was so huge. People would come by and take pictures. And it was right on our, our gate. And it made me a little nervous. I was like, well, that's a really big sign. And yet it was something that my daughter did. It made her feel a little bit better. Okay, sure. We'll keep that sign up. You want to go? to to a protest socially distanced okay we'll go to the tacoma park socially distanced protest where i know it will be families right the little things that you can do for them because just like when something terrible happens we as adults wish we could do something we have credit cards so we can kind of alleviate that by sending 25 dollars somewhere or even more we can alleviate that in different ways they often only have the outlets that we actually provide to them So really making sure they understand those hard feelings, those negative feelings are okay. Also, it's okay to be happy in the middle of it. Some kids sometimes feel like, well, since police brutality is still happening, I can't be happy. Oh, no, 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 you can, you can be happy. And we honor that too. And as a family, these are the things that we're committed to. And that's what we're going to do about it. It's, it's, you know, the conversations are as varied as our kids, but the most important thing that they have to know from us is that we are always a safe space to land. We are always a safe place to land when they have the, these tough, tough issues on their minds. And, and to close, I would say, and you can't separate it. You can't separate any discussion you have with your kids from a discussion of what's going on and a discussion of who they are. And I'm thinking about this morning having a, a meeting with a Sandy Swing Friends parent, a Black mom of a Black son, and we were just having a routine check on getting to know you. Let's talk about the academic progress, about social progress, how it's doing in this first year. And she said, before we even start this conversation, I got to tell you, this conversation is going to be different because of the murder of Dante Wright. And she just cried. I can't even talk about (laughs) a routine thing because this, this is in this conversation and I need you to know that. And I shared with her, I said, well, I'm glad you named that because I can't talk about your son if you don't know that I had to get up this morning and text my own son, who's 28. <laughs> and you're still, you're always raising your kids. And I got up this morning and saw the news and had to text him, checking in, how you doing? I didn't want it to, and he knows what that means. I'm now just waiting for the response. And in this conversation, he just texted me back and said, I'm good. And I just got my second vaccination. He knew he had to speak to both pandemics right. going Thank on. Thank you. <laughs> oh my but goodness. I say that to say, whether we're talking about a kindergartner, a 16-year-old, or a 28-year-old, these conversations with your kids, they never stop, right? They, they are the conversations with your kids. 
So thank you for sharing this time with me uh, for all the work that you do and bring. I hope that folks come to the author talk and this book is just so timely. And I'm sure when you sat down to write it, you knew people need this now. And then as it was unfolding, you're like, people need this right now. <laughs> well, I started it four years before it was published. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait, actually, people needed that right now, two years ago. But we, we now, we're going to get it to you. We're going to get it to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the New Stories Podcast.